0: Greek mythology tells a story of a bloody war in 500 BC between ancient warriors of Sparta and Troy. It began after Paris, the son to the king of Troy, ran off with Helen, the wife of Menelaus, king of Sparta. Menelaus' brother Argomenon then led a war campaign against Troy. The war was said to have raged on for 10 years until the Greeks tricked the Trojans by pretending to retreat and presenting them with a giant wooden horse. During the night, Spartan soldiers opened a hatch and emerged from the horse. The soldiers opened the gates for the rest of the army. The Spartans then sacked the city, massacred the men, and ran off with the women. Hundreds of years later, on the 25th of April, 1915, thousands of soldiers nervously awaited to make battle on the same grounds where these ancient warriors once fought the same place achilles was said to have fallen the place was now called gallipoli modern ships like the ss river clyde had become the new trojan horse with thousands of soldiers in her belly waiting to emerge Would the ottoman empire become the new troy Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. All right, folks, here we are. I'm assuming you know what this episode will be about. If you don't, then let me tell you. It's gonna be about the Gallipoli troop landings on April 25th, 1915. There's nothing positive about the great war. All it did was create multiple battles that resulted in a lot of bloodshed on many fronts, but some battles were bigger than others, And this one for sure was a big one. It was long, it was bloody, it was brutal, and overall resulted in many, many lives being lost. This is going to be part one of the Gallipoli landings. But before I get into that, let me ramble on a little bit just about life in general. How's everyone doing? Hope you listeners are in good health, you're safe, and you're smiling. You got to say all those things because these are some crazy times we're living in at least in my neck of the woods. I can't even watch the news. It just brings on sadness and depression. And honestly, I'm not looking to open up that door in my life anymore. I've dealt with enough sadness and depression in my life. And by no means am I stating I'm now living some perfect little house on the prairie or Ned Flanders style of life. But I have chosen to keep out the negative. And you know what? Seems to be working. And speaking of smiling... What am I drinking for this episode? It's been a few since I've had a drink on the show. Well, I'm drinking a Fuller's London Pride for our British lads, which is appropriate for this episode. Yeah, that's good. Oh, yeah. And I didn't hear my bulldog snoring in the background on the last episode, so we're winning. It's funny. I got him these new pepperoni sticks, which is which he absolutely loves. And apparently, they give him some horrible gas. Almost deadly gas, probably like chlorine or mustard that needs a gas mask, as my wife explains it. But my sense of smell hasn't returned after recovering from COVID, so not even that will interrupt the show. I am bummed about one thing, which I'd like to share. Several episodes ago, I talked about possibly getting some guests on the show to talk about anything related to the Great War. I brainstormed a few ideas... And the one I was most excited for was to do a show regarding dogs and war. I was hoping to bring on a Marine that trains military dogs and has knowledge on the subject. Well, I went through the appropriate channels that the Marine Corps requires, which deals with media and such things like that, and I got denied. Really bummed me out. I think it could be a really fun episode. I'm not giving up. I'm exploring other options for individuals who might have the knowledge of dogs in World War I compared to training dogs in today's military and what they're used for. And I'm sure you've picked up on this by now, but I love dogs. The phrase dogs are a man's best friend is truly an understatement. They bring joy to the whole family if you treat them like their family. And they've played an important role in wartime past and present. Hopefully I can put something together. Did everyone enjoy the last episode? Again, I know it wasn't action-packed, hard-hitting, but it contained important historical pieces to the Gallipoli puzzle, which leads up to this episode. A short, small recap, of what's taken place in the Dardanelles up to this point, The Allied superpowers of France and Great Britain boarded their ships and attempted to push through the Dardanelles Strait, pushing for Constantinople. They were stopped in their water tracks by guns firing from Turkish forts and howitzers, along with mines that littered the waters. A couple battleships have been sunk, hundreds of men lost. The British War Council decided the next option will be to land troops strategically around Gallipoli, take down the Turkish forts, the guns, and the ground troops, then proceed towards Constantinople. Lord Kitchener assigned Sir Ian Hamilton to take charge of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, who will be the assaulting force. And here we are. The date was set for April 25th, the Allies are going to strategically land troops around Gallipoli. 27,000 British troops, 30,000 Anzacs, and 16,000 French troops were aboard 200 transport ships approached from the south accompanied by 18 battleships including pre-dreadnoughts and super-dreadnoughts, a dozen cruisers, and 29 destroyers. This was going to be the largest amphibious assault facing an armed enemy that history had witnessed. Again, if you look at a map, the Dardanelles is at the northeast side of the Aegean Sea, southwest of Constantinople, or today called Istanbul. The Straits leads right up into the Sea of Marmara, separating Europe Turkey from Asia Turkey, leading right into the ancient city. The French were used as a temporary diversion they would be landed on a place called Kum Kalei on the Asia side. Otto von Sanders had placed two divisions to cover this area, but the problems for the Turks at Kum Kalei was that they were in easy reach of naval gunfire. What Sanders didn't know was that Ian Hamilton hadn't had much plans for this area and didn't devote much resources to it. The British were going to be landed on five separate beaches at Cape Helles on the Europe side, Sanders wasn't expecting a big big force to land there. His thoughts were, why would an invading force land at the furthest point from their destination, which in this case was Constantinople? He believed the Allies would land most of their troops at the northern part of the peninsula. And because of this, Sanders had placed two divisions at Bulaire, which was way north of the Straits on the Europe side. The Anzacs were to land up the coast less than halfway to Belair at a place called Gabatepe. Sanders had placed a third of his troops on the opposite side of the straits. His only option would be a division in the middle of the peninsula, which was about a day's march away from the Anzac landing site, who was under the command of Mustafa Kemal. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I'll be talking about Mustafa Kemal a number of times when discussing Gallipoli. Mustafa was an accomplished man, a military commander in Gallipoli, who accurately predicted where a portion of the Allies would land. After the war, he became the founding father of the Republic of Turkey, which he served as president from 1923 until his death in 1938. He was also an author. There's also a kebab shop in Munich with his name on it. Not sure if it's the same Mustafa, but what I do know. Is the donor there is absolutely amazing. Nothing goes better with German beer than a Turkish donor. I don't care what anybody says, that's the recipe for happiness. The place will get a line that spreads for a few blocks at certain parts of the day. And if you're in Munich, seek out Mustafa's. I'm serious, it could be the best donor I've ever had. Anywho, on paper, Again, the Allies seem to have a good plan based off the number of troops landing throughout Gallipoli. In reality, the Allies outnumber the Turks going into this, but as we know by now, this doesn't mean squat. For the Anzacs, yes, they didn't have the biggest army to face, but they did have an opponent to face that was prepared. And Aussies did have one major problem, and that was the terrain. They weren't about to land on beaches with a flat open beach. This wasn't going to be some tropical paradise beach. Oh no. They were about to encounter steep, rough, and uneven hills with rock lined ravines, which they were not prepared for. And to put a cherry on top of that Sunday, snipers were embedded all throughout the hilltops with a high ground advantage. That's never a good thing. And so the day had arrived. In the early morning hours of April 25th, 1915, under the cover of darkness and a chilly air, Allied ships carrying British and French troops moved with a purpose to secure key objective points along the southern Gallipoli Peninsula, making this the biggest amphibious assault the world had seen. Men sat and lied awake, thinking about what lay ahead, thinking about their girl or their wife back home, thinking about their mom their family or their kids, knowing they may never see them again. And yet that didn't matter because duty called and they willingly were about to risk it all for country. Some of the men mainly experienced NCOs and officers who knew exactly what they were heading into. Some of the men already experienced war and what separates a good leader from a bad one is mainly discipline. Yes, knowledge is important, But discipline is the key to a well-tuned army, and it starts from the top. Leaders have the responsibility to their soldiers not to show face of distress during times like this. The young, inexperienced soldiers need leaders to lead them into the unknown with courage and confidence. I can only imagine what it must have been like during those early morning hours. Thousands of men crammed into these large ships waiting for the next step, which would be to board smaller ships for the assault. Large ships like the SS River Clyde, which had been used to haul coal before the war, then was turned into a troop landing ship for Gallipoli, had thousands of men aboard, which which included both British and French. Now, my imagination runs deep. It doesn't stop with just the nerves men must have been feeling that day. I think of weird things, too like the bathroom situation. I'm not kidding, hear me out on this. There's thousands of men aboard who are all dealing with a nervous situation. And when people get nervous, they often get the bubblies if you know what I mean. Most people get the bubblies when they fly. Difference is a modern day airplane lavatory would have been considered extremely luxury back then and they didn't have luxury in 1915. If you've flown, which I'm sure just about everyone has, you know what I mean. You're sitting there, minding your own business, and all of a sudden you get hit with deadly gas from somebody's bubblies. And it's usually the person who first turns up the air, pretending like they don't know who did it. And to add to the gas, I'm sure the men's body odor smelt a high hell at this point. It's 1915. They didn't exactly bathe on a daily especially during the war. And yes, your sense of smell does kind of adapt to that after time, but not fully. So you take that and add in some horrific nervous gas and some possible accidental droppings in the pants, the smell probably made the situation a nightmare. I mean, the ships only had so many toilets. Think about that shitty situation. I don't know what I would do if I was in that situation and had to go number two. This is the guy who's made his wife leave a baseball game after a couple innings because I had to use the bathroom. Hey, no chance in hell I'm sitting on that nasty ass toilet at a ballpark. Hell no, I'm going home. And not saying I haven't contemplated it. I have. But after looking at them and deciding which one had the least amount of disease on it, I end up rushing home. I'm sure men fought to go up on deck that morning. You have your pick. Up top on the deck, probably in the cold ocean air, it was April, not summer, or in the stench below, I'll take my chances with the cold. These are the things that go through my head when I think about situations like that. Aboard the River Clyde, a young lieutenant struggles to find comfort in the situation, saying, quote, The night was bitterly cold. The holds were crowded and uncomfortable. Some of the officers went up on the deck. I tried to get some sleep, but the cold and hard iron decks were not congenial to sleep. I did find a warm shelter spot near the engines, but as I was dozing off, a heavy sea boot was planted firmly on my face. I had overlooked the fact that I was lying across the doorway to the engine room. 2nd Lieutenant Reginald Gillette, 2nd Hampshire Regiment, 88th Brigade, 29th Division, end quote. Another officer described later what he felt as they approached Hellas, saying, quote, I felt we were for it, that the enterprise was unique and would demand all I was possible of giving and more, that it was no picnic but a desperate venture, I just longed to get on with it and be done with it. I felt I was no hero and I had not pluck of a loose. My nerves were tense and strung up, and yet I never doubted that we would not win, though, because I knew the splendid fellows at my back, highly trained, strictly disciplined, and they would follow me anywhere. Captain Guy Gedes, 1st Royal Munster Fuselers, 86th Brigade, 29th Division, end quote. And I think it's appropriate to start the landings off with a speech given to the troops by Major General Hunter Weston. He said, quote, The eyes of the world are upon us and your deeds will live in history. To us now is given an opportunity of avenging our friends and relatives who have fallen in France and Flanders. Our comrades there willingly gave their lives in thousands and tens of thousands for our king and country. And by their glorious courage and dogged tenacity, they defeated the invaders and broke the German offensive. We must also be prepared to suffer hardships, pervasions, thirst, heavy losses by bullets, by shells, by mines, by drowning. Major General Almir Hunter Weston, Headquarters, 29th Division. End quote. The British knew the Turks were expecting them to land at the V&W beaches with Cape Hellas right in the middle at the tip of the peninsula and Sed el Bar to the right of V Beach. But they didn't know what was in store for them at the S, X, and Y beaches. On paper, again, the Brits outnumbered the Turks on the beaches. I'm not counting for reserves, just on the beaches on the day of the landing. And at the Hellas Peninsula, they received such a brutal, unwarming welcome The Brits actually believed they faced an opponent equally in numbers. The fact was, all that faced the British 29th was the 3rd Battalion of the 9th Turkish Division with a few elements from the 2nd Battalion. The Turks also had no machine guns and very little artillery support. But what they did have was good leadership with experienced troops and even more important, they had time to prepare defensive positions. The objective for Y Beach Landing was for the men to advance forward as far as necessary in order to distract the Turks from the main landings at V&W. They were also to link up with the men on X Beach south of them before advancing to Akibaba. The King's Own Scottish Borderers were the first to approach Y Beach around 4.15am, supported by the Plymouth Battalion. As they approached and the picture was becoming clearer, it appeared there was no actual beach. It looked just to be cliffs, about 150 feet in height with a narrow strip of rocks that separated the cliffs from the water. Definitely not what they expected for a beach landing. The nearest Turkish position was roughly about a mile south of the landing point. To make matters worse, their boats grounded out about 30 to 40 yards from this so-called beach. As soon as the boat stopped, the men jumped over the sides into the water. Which was about waist deep at that point a private described the situation saying as soon as the boat touched out we jumped into the water no further order was necessary before we realized what had happened we were waist deep instead of the water getting shallower it got deeper the smaller men having a difficult time keeping their collars dry floundering was frequent and when it is taken into account the weight we were carrying floundering was no joke our rifles often submerged in our attempts to retain our balance. Private Daniel Joyner, 1st KOSB, 87th Brigade, 29th Division, quote. The soldiers weren't expecting to be neck deep in the ocean, 30 to 40 yards from the beach. But then again, as a grunt, a bailu, an infantryman, or even just being a soldier, your job is to expect the unexpected adapt to the situation and push on that's what you're expected to do the situation didn't improve it got worse once getting to the cliffs they then had to scale to the sides and get to the top gear and all one good thing though at this point the turks still hadn't spotted them, because if they did it would have been a bloodbath on the shore once the troops gathered at the top they got a good view of the field of battle they were about to face Companies of men were sent forward to Goli Ravine, which laid parallel along the coast between them and Krithia. Men from the Plymouth Battalion were told to seek out and destroy a reported Turkish artillery piece operating in the area, but they were unsuccessful in locating it. Remember, the artillery would fire on the ships, then move positions. Saunders had clearly moved this piece out. Up to this point, Hamilton seemed pleased with the landings at White Beach and wired Hunter Weston asking if they should land more troops there. Hunter Weston sat back, thought about it. Hmm, should I land more troops? Hmm. Well, he denied the request, stating it would only delay the landings. Historians have raised the question if this was a major missed opportunity by Hunter Weston. After scaling the cliffs, going on a scavenger hunt, the British at y Beach really accomplished nothing of value. They pretty much were just there, just playing the game of sitting ducks. That is, until the afternoon when they started taking fire, they began to dig in between the clifftops and the Gully Ravine. At first, all they had was the cover from their packs that they laid behind. They desperately began to dig, some only around 18 to 24 inches deep that's not deep at all with bullets cracking over your head. The situation was morphing into a cluster, you know what, a big sloppy soup sandwich. The overall command of the troops on the ground hadn't been established. There was confusion. Was it the Lieutenant Colonel from the 1st King's Own Scottish Borders or the Lieutenant Colonel from the Plymouth Battalion? This was basically the point when the men decided it was best to dig in. The Brits realized the Turks from Gully Beach, about a mile away from the landings, were making their way towards them, along with reserves from Seraphim Farm, the 125th Regiment, and an artillery battery, they were all en route to welcome the Brits at White Beach. The situation was getting tense for the Tommies. again. The overall goal for Y Beach was to create a distraction by getting the attention from as many Turkish troops as possible. So technically at this point, they were kind of doing their job from the beginning of the plan. And that's hard to say because they were basically used as pawns. And just by that statement and the fact that the men were already feeling the pressure from the Turks, so much that they were digging in without making any real advancement, paints a picture that this is going to get bloody. A private from the KOSB described how the situation was getting worse as the time passed, saying, quote, the shrapnel was getting annoying, the high explosives dangerous, the bullets dangerous, the sun hot, the throat dry, the water in our bottles precious and warm, the stomach needed food and the eyes of many refused to open them. Some of us even tried to make some tea. But no sooner was smoke seen than bullets began to splutter. As the sun went down, the heat of the day changed to a very chilly night. Private Daniel Joyner, 1st KOSB, 87th Brigade, 29th Division, end quote. My wife and I's favorite area in California is the central coast around Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo. And the weather there is very much like Private Joyner just described. During certain months of the year, it can be close to 100 degrees plus Fahrenheit in the day, and by early evening, it drops to a very chilly temperature. It's strange weather, and fighting in a climate like that would just make matters worse. By the way, some of the best wines in California come from the Central Coast, in my opinion. Paso Robles alone has over 300 wineries that surround the small town. So if you ever visit California, Don't waste your time with a place like Los Angeles. Go to the Central Coast. As the Turks from the 125th Regiment started to show up, the intensity of the fight drastically increased. Not only were snipers dropping troops, now there was a wave of Turks coming down on them. A private from the Plymouth described it saying, Shortly after the snipers made their appearance, word was getting passed along the line that a large body of troops were advancing over the skyline. Then another message followed that an even larger body of troops advancing over the skyline. As our platoon had taken up a position about 10 yards from the top of the cliff, it was not possible to see them advancing for some time after. They were 800 to 900 yards away, advancing in mass formation, shouting and waving the rifles above their heads. As soon as they came within a reasonable distance, we opened fire upon them. They still rushed on, until the two cruisers who were supporting us, the HMS Goliath and the HMS Dublin, each fired a broadside which completely scattered them. It was growing dark now, and the Turks had taken possession of the trench 600 yards away. We had prepared ourselves for the worst. Shortly after dark, they made their first charge as we expected. They came up within 10 yards of our trench, but by keeping up a rapid fire, we held them back. They retired for a short time, but there was a regular hail of bolts hitting the parapets of the trench and almost blinding us with dirt. The dirt was also getting into the mechanisms of our rifles, which added to the difficulty of keeping up rapid fire. The noise was awful. The wounded groaning and calling for stretchers, which never came. The incessant rattle of the machine guns and rifles. The wounded and dying Turks in front calling for Allah. To make matters more cheerful, it began to rain. Private John Vickers, Plymouth Battalion, Royal Marine Brigade, R.N.D., end quote. That's a powerful account of the situation by John Vickers. Snipers were creating blowbacks of brain matter coming out of the soldiers' heads or punching holes right in their chest. Then waves of Turks closing in until naval gunfire could scatter them. And then the bullets continued to crack on by. And let's point out that the more rapid fire the Brits responded with, the quicker the ammo was being depleted. And the only way to get them more was by boating it in and taking it up to the cliffs to their dug-in positions. I mean, think about that. You're on the ship or boats in the straits, watching explosions on the top of the hills. There's smoke, chaos, and you're told to get to shore and get ammo to the cliff to the boys. Imagine those responses. But it's got to get done. They need to be resupplied with ammo at the least. Look, you run out of ammo in this situation. That's definitely not good. That evening, More men were ordered forward to support the front lines after realizing the Turks had discovered a gap and were en route to expose it. The men were spread dangerously thin across the line. Any sort of gap meant an opportunity for the Turks to come down on them. That's kind of the way the trenches and hasty-formed fighting lines worked back then. If a gap was exposed, you better believe the enemy was going to make a move on it. That was the path of least resistance into the trench line. The British commanders at White Beach were desperate for reinforcements as the fire from the Turks kept increasing. Men were going mad. Both enlisted and officers were starting to doubt they would ever see daylight again. Some of the men held 25 to 50 yards by themselves. That's insane. If they were to run out of bullets, they were prepared to attach bayonets and die fighting. By midnight, the Turks had moved within hand grenade distance they began to hurl exploding biscuits into the British front lines. The men being able to rest at this point wasn't an option. Private Joyner again described what it was like living through the night, saying, quote, The bombs came over thick and fast. Those that fell short threw the dirt in our eyes. Those that fell over set fire to the gorse. Not only did the thoughts of being burned alive cause us to take action, but the flare behind us, the Turks opened fire whenever a glare-lit target appeared. We could not retaliate in kind. Firstly, we had no bombs, and also the position we were in would not allow us charging or firing at the bombers effectively. As the bombs burst, men crawled out and put out the flames. We were finally saved from this predicament by the rain. Private Daniel Joyner, End quote. The chaos continued throughout the night up until the next morning, when the Turks launched a desperate attack to overrun the British at White Beach. The Turks charged, pushing the Tommies back at one point to the edge of the cliffs. Then the British officers would rally the troops, and they would answer with their own charge. It continued like this all morning, back and forth, back and forth. By late that morning, both sides were running on complete exhaustion. The Brits hadn't seen any sleep for over 24 hours, maybe even 48 And I can only imagine the Turks who were dug in waiting for the arrival didn't get much sleep either. Sleep deprivation is no joke, as I'm sure probably everyone has experienced some form of it. Experts claim that with three days of no sleep, this can seriously affect a person's cognitive functions. The mental ability to learn, think, reason, remember, problem solve, and decision make start to shut down. I'll challenge that from personal experience. I say it's more like 48 hours and the cognitive functions start to get thrown off balance. I've gone without sleep up to 48 hours, maybe a handful of times in the military. And I'm sure you've come to the conclusion, I'm no scientist, shocking as they may be, but I wasn't forming some sort of hypothesis on my cognitive functions during these periods. I can only tell you the actual physical effects I experienced And the one I remember most is hallucinations. Now, obviously there's some sort of reaction that happens to the brain after a certain point with no sleep and what exactly happens, I don't know. And it really doesn't matter, but I do know it can be dangerous depending on the situation. Individuals suffering from sleep deprivation at a certain point will visually hallucinate other people, objects, even animals being present that aren't really there. I've hallucinated all three, but the one I remember being the wildest was a row of Civil War tents being present. The white Civil War tents you see in movies. I was taking a knee, and I remember seeing row after row of them. Eventually, I snapped out of it, or maybe somebody grabbed my attention. One time, my squad was traveling on a Zodiac boat, and my buddy hallucinated an alligator cruising along the water with us. Which, there were alligators in that neck of the swamps, but nope. Not this time. And I know it wasn't an alligator because it was a hippopotamus wearing a bow tie with a funny hat. I seen it. I know it's easy to confuse the two, but yeah, no alligator was there. That's crazy, man. And why I'm bringing this up is because think about it the physical and mental stress both sides are dealing with already now add in sleep deprivation. Those poor boys did not have an easy time on White Beach. The good thing with going through this type of stress of no sleep, usually a soldier will develop this thing where they can sleep through just about anything if the situation allows for it. They'll learn to sleep through gunshots, cracking of bullets, explosions, or just chaos in general. I'm a strange bird. I can sleep through anything, as I just stated, if I'm tired enough and I'm able to sleep or my mind is willing to let me sleep. I can sleep through chaos, yet at any little noise during the night, it'll get me up. My dog can walk away at any hours of the night or early morning, and I know he's awake walking around. I can hear him clearly, and it's always because he's got to go potty or something. But any noise in or around the house, bam, the lights come on in my head, and I'm up, and sometimes I'm up for the day that early. If I could tell you how many times I've made my morning coffee at 3 a.m. And to add to my crazy, I have to sleep with a window open or at least cracked. I know, right? You're probably saying, that doesn't even make sense. And it may not to most people, but there is people out there where this will make complete sense to them. Throughout the night and next morning, there wasn't only confusion regarding command on Y Beach. Messages continued to flow into the 29th headquarters asking for support, but by this point they were being ignored. That opportunity had come and gone already. The attention of the higher-ups was at V&W beaches now. Wounded, dying men were being boated out along with men who believed an evacuation had already begun. They started pulling back. Command and control seemed to have been lost at this point. There was no clear instructions from officers, and the Brits gave up their fight for Y Beach. By 11.30 a.m., the evacuation had been completed. White Beach was a moral defeat for the British. They had battleships from a superior navy supporting them at one point. They had the Turks beaten in numbers at the beginning, yet everything seemed to fall apart and the underdog bogged down and drove them back. The Brits achieved nothing of importance from a strategic military point of view. No ground was gained and they failed the overall objective to link up with the troops at X beach south of them. And this isn't to say they didn't put up a fight. They did. What I believe led to this overall failure was the lack of command. I do believe the Tommies on the front put up a great fight. The 29th was a crack unit and they could shoot. No doubt by the time the withdrawal happened, there was also many dead Turks spread across the area. The landings at X beach went rather well compared to what took place at Y beach. The 2nd Royal Fusiliers of the 86th Brigade landed on a small beach beneath low cliffs which were relatively easy for the men to climb up. The men were set to be the supporting effort for the X and V beaches after linking up with the men from the Y. The pre-dreadnought Implacable blasted the cliff tops with naval gunfire before the men reached the shores. Although this only killed about a dozen Turks, which isn't much and would seem rather excessive if it wasn't for the fact that they also decommissioned two four-barreled Nordenfelts. The Nordenfelts is a gravity-fed multi-barreled gun that had the capacity to fire a range of calibers. Some Nordenfelts had up to 12 barrels. Kind of like a Gatlin gun. But not really. Kind of. By 0730, the whole battalion was ashore on X Beach with no loss. They proceeded to move inland where they did encounter some Turkish resistance. The RFs quickly established a defensive position and took their objective. Hill 114 by 11.30 a.m., after which they made contact with troops at W Beach. The Turks had made a bold move by gathering up around 250 men for a counterattack. This forced the Tommies back to the cliffs of X Beach. In the end, with the help of the 1st Border Regiment and the 1st Inishgilling Fusilers, they were able to repel the advancing Turks and push them back. Late in the evening, orders came through for the men to link up with the troops from White Beach after getting word there was fierce fighting taking place there. But Brigadier General William Marshall ignored the orders and remained in place. I believe Marshall's thoughts on ignoring this were based off of taking his troops and force marching them through unknown terrain filled with packs of turks could have been disastrous the purpose of the landings at s beach were similar to x and y it was it was established to be a supporting flanking unit for w and v beach landings here the second south wales borders were to land on the eastern side of morto bay and seize a battery above the beach hold their position then link up with the men from v once they were established in place Morto Bay was right between V and S beaches. And like X beach, they too fought hard, but nothing like what happened at Y beach. The South Wales borders reached their objective at the battery and they believed they were facing a much bigger opponent than what they really were. They claimed to be facing a whole battalion. when in reality, it was a single platoon from the 226th regiment. After taking the battery, they sat and waited for word from the V beach. One major issue or, f- or fumble from the landing at S-Beach actually came from the captain of the HMS Cornwallis, who was supporting the landing. At one point, Captain Alexander Davidson went ashore and was commanding a group of Navy fighters protecting the left flank of the South Wales borders. The Cornwallis was also to be used as a supporting fire for the v- V-Beach landings. So now they had to wait for this out-of-control captain who was commanding ground troops which should have been delegated to much lower-ranking officers. Now they had to wait for him to reembark the ship, which took time. The HMS Cornwallis showed up late to V Beach Landing, and it's hard to say if it had shown up on time, if it would have had any impact. But regardless, when it showed up, it was already too late. All right, folks, I'm going to start wrapping this episode up right here. On the next episode, I'm going to cover the V&W beach landings, which is going to get even bloodier. I'd like to thank everyone for their continued support. You fans are the best. Don't forget to follow OTT on Instagram and Facebook if you're on social media. Take care, everyone.